Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. It's a monthly GI podcast where I crack open the journals and find interesting articles and read them so you don't have to. If you like what you hear and have the time, please go to iTunes and leave a review for the podcast so others have an easier time finding it. And also just spread the word. I think most people listening to this podcast actually heard about it from someone else. So keep up spreading the word. And now let's go to the journals. Most people getting colonoscopies these days are asked to stop their Plavix five to seven days prior to their screening colonoscopy. Since colonoscopy with polypectomy is deemed a high-risk procedure by the same guidelines from ASGE that recommends stoppage of Plavix. How solid is that guideline on the Bristol stool scale? It is given three out of four pluses, meaning moderate quality. I actually dipped back into the March issue of gastroenterology because somehow I missed it. But it's pretty cool when you have a randomized trial of stopping Plavix prior to polypectomy to see if there's any impact on bleeding. Study was done in Hong Kong where they took patients on Plavix for cardiovascular disease and told these patients to stop taking it for seven days prior to their colonoscopy and then randomly assigned them to taking Plavix versus placebo. That's pretty brave. Primary endpoint was delayed post-polypectomy bleeding. Cumulative incidence of bleeding in this study was 3.8% in in Plavix group versus 3.6% for placebo. So no difference. This was done for over 300 patients, which is incredible. Two takeaways from this study. One, we may not need to stop Plavix, at least for routine endoscopy. And we kind of knew that. I'm interested to see if this study will affect future guidelines at all. I don't think anyone is rushing to change them just yet. But more importantly, the second takeaway, I think, is that if your patient is on Plavix, shows up for colonoscopy prepped, but oops, they forgot to stop it. It's probably okay to go ahead and do the screening or surveillance colonoscopy. Truth is, many times you resume Plavix right after the procedure, and rarely do you need to hold it anyway. I don't know, sometimes I see docs turning away patients, and I always feel bad. I tend not to do this. And thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. What do you guys do in such cases? Let me know. Send me an email to info at gipearls.com. Oh, and another thing, why does the title of this article insist on having the industry independent mentioned right in the title? Does it mean that every study who doesn't say industry independent is industry dependent? Anyway, moving on. There's an interesting paper published in GUT. Personalized surveillance for serrated polyposa syndrome results from a prospective five-year international cohort study. This is a bit of useful data. Sesso serrated polyposa syndrome, prevalence of this is estimated to be 1 in 100 to 200 patients. So I guess the statement is true that if you don't find at least one of these routinely every month, if you're a high-volume endoscopist, then you're doing something wrong. Truth is that I think many of the true SPSS patients actually never get their official diagnosis. So I have a feeling that most of them end up getting colonoscopy every three to five years, depending on the number of polyps found. There's no genetic mutation that leads to a diagnosis, so sending these patients to geneticists is pretty much useless. The other interesting fact about SPSS is that vast majority of cancer is found on initial colonoscopy or even prior to that. So going back to the study, it looked at patients at Dutch and Spanish hospitals and asked a good question. Can you reduce the burden of colonoscopies, at least in some patients, with sessile serrated polyposis syndrome? They split folks into yearly surveillance versus every two years. And guess what? Here's a quote. We believe that more stringent surveillance than the regimen described by our surveillance protocol will not further reduce CRC incidence. After all, one of the two colon cancers that occurred in our study occurred after surveillance recommendation of one year. 
meaning there's no difference in the rate of colon cancer found whether you do surveillance at one year or two years. But since none of the CRCs can be attributed to the lengthened surveillance intervals, extension of surveillance intervals to two years based on a protocol described by these folks is deemed to be safe and feasible by the study authors. At the end of the day, we're trying to prevent advanced neoplasia. So is there a threshold? Is there a benchmark for this? The authors say that the study suggests that advanced neoplasia incidence rate of 20 to 25% per surveillance colonoscopy might be inevitable. And basically going down to every other year colonoscopy is not going to change it that much or prevent things to a major degree. So maybe doing less is more? I don't know. I think if you're really good and find all the patients that you're supposed to with sesalcerated polyposis syndrome, sticking to one year is the least of your worries. Thankfully, there's not that many patients like this. But if you're one of those patients and you get the colonoscopy every year, that really sucks. So reducing it to every two years could be a good thing. It may be time to move our foot away from the cautery pedal and do less hot snares. This next systematic review published in GIE in May issue looked at over 500 polyps in size larger than 10 millimeters. Mean polyp size was 17 millimeters, by the way, and reported outcomes of using cold snare polypectomy. Bleeding rates were actually not too bad, about 1%. Abdominal pain in half a percent, with polyps larger than 20 millimeters having the highest bleeding rate and abdominal pain rate of about 1%. There is no delayed bleeding and no perforations occurred in this cohort. Complete resection rate was 99%, and that's pretty impressive based on some other studies showing how bad we are at removing the whole polyp. So my feeling is that this was probably self-reported. So maybe cold snare resection of large polyps, even piecemeal, is not so bad tell you what I do, and if I'm doing it wrong, please yell at me at info at gipearls.com once again, and let me know a better way. So what I do is if I see a large polyp and I'm confident enough that I can remove the whole thing myself, I usually generously lift it. And if I can't get the whole big thing in one big swoop, I piecemeal resect it with cold snare, remove all the polyp tissue I can with cold snare, and then burn the edges of polypectomy site once all the polyp tissue is removed. And I do this to prevent recurrence. And then I do clipping depending on the defect size and if there are any vessels that I see underneath. One cool trick I learned recently is to get some epi in the lifting mix for large polyps and lift the polyp on the way in, complete your exam, and then on the way back out, you can remove it because it shrinks a little bit. What's the best bariatric surgery? Well, it all depends on what you're trying to achieve. I think that most patients care about the actual weight they're going to lose not how long their blood pressure is going to get, or how low their A1C is going to get, or the safety of the surgery. But all of these things are, of course, important. This next multicenter outcomes data from India, published in Obesity Surgery Journal, looked at weight regain after bariatric surgery for sleeve gastrectomy, RU&Y, versus mini-slash-1-anastomosis gastric bypass. I must admit I'm yet to see a patient with 1-anastomosis gastric bypass, and maybe I'm alone in this, but in any case, it is done with a long gastric pouch starting from below the crow's foot and going approximately to the left of the angle of his. An anterior wide gastrojejunostomy is constructed about 2 meters distal to the trites ligament. Other names for this mini gastric bypass are omega loop gastric bypass and, as I mentioned before, one anastomosis. Anyway, I guess these are more common in India and maybe Europe. I don't know. So in the end, the median weight regain after five years of over 10 kilograms, which is one of the definitions they used here, was 35% for sleeve patients 
15% for Roux and Y patients, and only 3% for mini gastric bypass. So mini seems to be the winner, no? Not so fast. According to the study, five-year follow-up, sleeve patients had lower weight loss at three to five years in comparison to Roux and Y and one anastomosis patients. But at the same time, sleeve seems to have the least impact on hemoglobin and albumin levels in the long term, which were much lower in comparison for the other two procedures. Wine anastomosis in the end seemed to result in the least weight regain, but has the highest incidence of anemia and severe hypoalbuminemia. So maybe that's why it hasn't taken off in the United States. If you know why we don't do it here, please email me. My guess is it's because of the gastrojejunal bypass nature of it, which I'm going to talk about in a second. So this next one is a meta-analysis of what happens to NAFLD when you get bariatric surgery. There's no guesswork here and no wishy-washy stuff. This study looked at biopsy-confirmed resolution of NAFLD and associated histology and how often does it happen, and it's published in CGH. 66% of patients end up losing steatosis of their liver, and 40% of patients' fibrosis goes away. Of course, it all depends on the degree of weight loss, but those are the raw numbers. Also interesting is that 12% of patients who did not have NAFLD developed it after bariatric surgery. Unclear why, but it is a meta-analysis after all. But there's some speculation as this would be related to nutrient handling, maybe malnutrition, or the type of surgery used, mainly biliopancreatic diversion and jejunal ileal bypass. A historic note, and maybe an homage to Adam Rodman here with his Exxon podcast, boy does he make you love history. Anyway, jejunal ileal bypass was invented in the 60s, and before that there were a bunch of other surgeries tried, including complete removal of parts of the small bowel, and this was done because surgeons noted that if their patient lost part of their small bowel, they lost some weight, even if they ate more. So then they started doing this jejunal ileal bypass surgery, and it worked. Patients immediately started shedding pounds, and more than 100,000 overweight people chose to undergo the surgery over 50 years ago now. But in addition to absorbing fewer calories, these patients developed fat-soluble vitamin deficiencies, lost their hair, developed anemia, fatigue, had trouble seeing at night, and of course, also some patients developed fibrosis of their liver. And eventually, docs made the link between the surgery and subsequent malnutrition, and by 1980s, jejunal ileal bypass had fallen out of favor. And thank goodness for that. Anyway, going back to this resolution of NAFLD after bariatric surgery paper, once again, 66% of patients lost their steatosis, and 40% of patients actually lost fibrosis of their livers, which is impressive. Going back to scoping, do you use a face shield when you scope, or goggles, or maybe nothing? This next prospective study tries to convince us that doing colonoscopy is disgusting, and you're bound to have poop land on your face, or elsewhere. Okay, so it was a prospective six-month study of four GI docs using a face shield during endoscopy. The face shield was then swabbed for bacteria before and after colonoscopy. I must admit they did a good job of doing some controls, including the face shield that was just hanging out in the room about six feet away from where the endoscopist was standing. But what's remarkable is that the endoscopist's face shield grew bacteria 45% of the time, and the shield six feet away did so 21% of the time. And based on the data from this one place, they estimate that you will get splashed in the face with poop about 5.3 out of 100 half days that you are working. People standing 6 feet away will get splashed with poop about 3.4% of the time. I think other than being a very fun and disgusting study, I don't think there's much more to it. You probably should wear some eye protection, 
but going beyond that is probably wasteful unless we can actually show that we actually are spreading bacteria and causing harm when we don't wear full face shields i don't think endoscopists get sick more often than other docs i mean you can do that easily by just counting sick days for those who wear face shield versus goggles versus nothing or something like that but to claim that this spreads c diff or multi-drug resistant organisms it's just fear-mongering i think i think most gi docs already admit to themselves that they have a dirty job and that's the end of it poop is gross yes we already know that but thanks for a funny article and kudos for getting it into the gie it was a lot of fun to read but at the end of the day i think this will be treated more like you know the hospital protection gowns against MRSA, how none of it does anything. Well, we'll see. GERD with alarm symptoms should get you an upper endoscopy. But let's face it, most upper endoscopies these days are done willy-nilly or, I don't know, uncomplicated GERD. Emery Lin from OHSU decided to look at the endoscopic outcomes for patients with uncomplicated GERD as an indication for EGD and then to look at demographics to see what's what. Result is that their paper published in CGH in April of this year. And basically what they found is that 14% of all EGDs were done for uncomplicated GERD, and less than a quarter of these were done in patients who had an increased risk of Barrett's, meaning white men over 50. How much Barrett's was found? 5.6% of patients ended up with suspected Barrett's, and only 1.4% had long-segment Barrett's. So out of 14% of endoscopies done for a complicated GERD, only less than 2% had long-segment Barrett's. And older white men accounted for most of the Barrett's found. Tumors were found, yes, less than one-tenth of 1% 1 of the time. What's interesting is that this is analysis of thousands of patients with EGDs, and for the past two decades, the numbers of Barrett's are much lower than they were in the 90s. Rates of long-segment Barrett's back then were ranging from 2.6 to 4%, meaning double or even quadruple the number found here. Two things are possible. We used to be a lot more careful about doing EGDs, meaning we're more likely to do them for alarm features or just basically picking patients more appropriately before. The other possibility is that there's a true decline in the rates of Barrett's esophagus. I don't know. Truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Another amazing thing about this study that captured more than 10% of all EGDs done over the past 20 years in the United States. That's pretty cool. And speaking of Barrett's, how often does persistent non-dysplastic Barrett's progress to malignancy? The answer to that question comes from the next paper in the same issue of CGH. It is 0.68 per 100 person years. In this paper coming out of Holland, out of 12,700 patients, only 436 developed high-grade dysplasia or cancer over 10 years of follow-up, or 3.4%. And we're talking about starting with non-dysplastic Barrett's. Incidence of cancer or dysplasia decreased by 14% for each year of follow-up too. And the authors basically argue that we need to do less surveillance for Barrett's. I think there's a risk of bias here since those who had progressed early, it's not like they had a negative endoscopy before since no one went looking. I guess one analogy would be that if you're boarding the train that is going to crash, you're more likely to die if you're boarding closer to the stop where the crash occurs, since if you board that train earlier, say at the very beginning, you may get off at any other stop that the train is making along the way before it crashes. But I don't disagree that we probably do too many surveillance EGDs, and it's hard not to. Esophageal cancer is a pretty devastating disease. We just gotta figure out the most effective way to survey and find these cancers early.
All right, one more telfacitinib paper. This time is this time is a case series of just four cases. Does this drug help those who are hospitalized with severe UC after biologics don't work? Here, the patients had a high CRP over 100, failed IV steroids in the past, and failed infliximab. So they were admitted, given IV steroids, but also tofacitinib, 10 milligrams three times a day for nine doses. All four patients had improvement in symptoms and, of course, improvement in CRP. Two patients end up with colectomy six months later anyway, due to multifocal dysplasia found, and one more patient relapsed with CRP rising and ended up with a colectomy. So not a slam dunk here, but maybe this was more of a Hail Mary for those patients with sky-high CRPs. And if your patient's CRPs are lower and they're admitted to the hospital failing biologics, they may do better on tofacitinib. And tofacitinib sure acts fast. Lactulose and now rifaximin is what we use to treat hepatic encephalopathy. That's pretty much all we've got. And while they'll probably give somebody a Nobel Prize to figure out how exactly rifaximin does its magic, because giving this broad-spectrum antibiotic somehow causes more good than harm, there is no doubt it does something to the microbiome. Which is why folks out there are trying to do fecal transplants for hepatic encephalopathy. Hepatology published results of phase 1 trial of FMT for hepatic encephalopathy. It was done on 20 patients with MELDs of about 10, and it appeared to be safe. No surprise there but also encephalap performance improved post-FMT only, P of 002, as did microbial diversity. Not the worst idea in the world, and I hope it works, and hopefully it doesn't get to be too expensive, and hopefully you don't have to do it every three months. I think Digestive Diseases Sciences Journal sometimes publishes reviews of what the current research folks out there think about the latest, greatest treatments of diseases and what their opinions on various things are. I think there are as many approaches to treating eosinophilic esophagitis as there are GI ducts out there. Some ducts do one-and-done approach. Once EOE is confirmed, they just keep writing that script for budesonide or fluticasone and hope the patient doesn't come back with a food impaction. Others do things quite differently. Doing the one-and-done approach may not be as wrong as it sounds, since over a third of patients end up not doing well on dietary elimination therapy, or a food trigger is actually never narrowed down. Carrie Cotton from Evan Dellen's group in North Carolina published their take on some of the controversies when it comes to these dietary treatments for EOE. One of the biggest controversies, and you hear it again and again and again, is the need for allergy testing via IgE or other approaches. And these folks blow it right out of the park by saying that positive predictive value of IgE food testing is below 50%. And rates of responses to elimination that is found by this method is 13% or less meaning that the implicated food is most likely not causative, and if food is causative, it's allergy testing most likely to be negative. I think the best experimental approach to date is the esophageal prick test that I discussed a while back, where they basically introduced the actual food allergen right into the esophagus, and it's mentioned in this review as well. It's a pretty cool method, and I hope we get to see something out of that line of research soon. Another controversy is exactly how to do the six food elimination diets and mainly how to introduce foods back and in what order. Also, four food elimination diets has been successful in some studies in majority of patients, meaning over 60% or so. Still issues with reintroduction and there is no standard on endoscopy afterwards. Also, even if you identify a potential food trigger, there is little data on long-term efficacy of avoidance of that food. 
I guess there are a lot of controversies with dietary treatments, and there's less controversy, of course, with medical treatment. Most of the time, steroids work pretty well. So if you want to learn more about how confusing the field of dietary research when it comes to EOE is, definitely read this review. And that's all we're going to do for today. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. By the way, my hospital is looking for another GI doc. We're looking for a generalist who knows how to do ERCP and maybe EUS. So if you know of someone who wants to work with yours truly, please email me at info at Otherwise, I'm busy working on next month's podcast, so send me articles. And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover the podcast. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.